The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Apparently people think I look like this man they call Ravine. or I don't even know who the f Ravine is. Apparently he's this ventriloquist or psychic or some guy. And I look like him, which is kind of cool. People think I look like a famous person. And that's kind of neat, I guess. But I don't like these all these little f***ers running around calling me Ravine. Ravine. I, I mean, I... I call him Ravine too, but he calls me Dick, so I'm justified. You know what I'm saying? I'd rather call him Dick than Ravine. <laughs> me too, man. Serious. Not hypnotic, that's for sure. Hey, look, everybody, it's Ravine! What is this Ravine shit, man? I'm losing it. Don't worry. Ricky. Ravine lives. Keep calm. Ravine. Keep calm. Ravine. Shut up! Stop fing calling me Ravine! Ricky. Ricky. He was like an. 15 years old, he started growing the sideburns. Everyone called him Elvis, and then he looked like Ravine because he tried to grow this thing here. He looks like the Wolverine. He looks like a comic book. It's like a Ravine or Wolfman Jack. It's the same guy. Like I, Even the kids here call him Ravine. I mean, that's how bad it is. I mean, I understand you're going to get bitter, but you know what I mean? Take it out on the kids, not us. Ravine is not a bad guy, all right? Don't worry about it. Swayze and Ravine! Did they just call me Patrick Swayze? Yeah, they did. Is the man they Don't see it, Bubbles. Ravi. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May the 4th, 2023. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. No, Ravine is not a ventriloquist or a psychic guy. In fact, the late Peter Ravine was a world-famous Australian magician and hypnotist able to induce in front of live audiences what could be compared to the phenomenon of mass psychosis cited by Matthias Desmet, whom we have highlighted on several previous broadcasts. So why are we talking about a man named Ravine today, in May of 2023? Well, that's Robert's fault, <laughs> and he'll explain why right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because, as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now, a while back, Robert, you relayed to me a personal experience that, quite frankly, I found difficult to believe. And it involved this fellow, Peter Ravine. And uh, I think you want to share that story with us because it's quite a remarkable experience. Well, he was a remarkable man, and I did see him at one of his shows, and I can relate relate that to you. Perhaps I, I could set the stage first and, and describe what I was going through at that time. Now, this was a bit, about 1980, and it was in St. John's, Newfoundland, at the Arts and Culture Centre, which, by the way, is right next to Memorial University of Newfoundland, where I was going as a student at the time. It may be a bit of a digression, but I, I want to get it out there because it it might impress people as to why I would be so 
enthralled by a hypnotist and hypnotism in the mind. And that is that, okay, I just started university in 1978. Okay, I majored in physics. And during my second term, I think, I took an elective, which was psychology, because everybody said it was darn easy, (laughs) which it was, Um, Psychology 1000. And in that, they they covered things like the ASH experiment, which I'll get uh, into later, and the uh, Milgram's white coat experiment. And it was fascinating. And at that time, I went with my friend, John, to see the man they call Ravine at a program at the Arts and Culture Center. Now, there had been about a thousand people in the audience because Ravine uh, toured the Maritimes especially, but he went around the world, but he toured the Maritimes, Atlantic Canada, um, and fell in love with the place. And most of his uh, shows were in Atlantic Canada. So everybody knew who Ravine was. He was all over the television as well with his advertisements, you know, the man they call Ravine. And... That clip that we <laughs> opened the show with was, of course, Trailer Park Boys. And uh, that was filmed, I think, in Nova Scotia. So they know what they're talking about. I don't know if anybody else would, but they know what they're talking about when they when they made fun of one of the characters who looked like Ravine. Right. So we go to this program, and it starts off with Ravine, who was quite a showman, I'm telling you. But anyway, he would say to the audience, okay, now we need, of course, volunteers from the audience to be our subjects. So he said, intertwine your fingers in both hands. Now put them over your head, upside down, right? And then he said, okay, you're feeling relaxed, you're you're feeling comfortable. Now, now, hmm? now he's saying this to the whole audience, not to a selected bunch of people, right? Correct, yeah, like yeah. at least at least a thousand. The place was packed. Okay, okay, and you're all still sitting in your seats. We're all in our seats, with our hands above our heads, with our fingers intertwined, and then he just, you know, goes through his incantation that you're relaxed, that you can now move your fingers down, but you cannot take them apart, right? You cannot disentwine your fingers. And a lot of people, you know, were susceptible to his suggestion and could not take their hands apart. Now, I did not want to be hypnotized. And he basically said this at the beginning, if you don't want to be hypnotized, you, you can't be hypnotized. And of course, I could uh, disengage my fingers, but my friend John said that he could not take his hands apart. And so he said, everybody who can't so, take so, their hands so apart. So he's, he, he, he's telling you this consciously while he's sitting there with his hands above his head and he's literally telling you he can't disconnect his hands? At this point, they put, brought their hands down. Yeah. But they're still intertwined. But yes, he's telling me okay. that he couldn't do it, right? Wow. So then Ravine says to everybody who cannot take their hands apart, come up to the front, to the stage. And oh, I, I would say a hundred people, you know, so like one-tenth of the audience got up onto the wow. sides and walked. And Ravine would take their hands and pull them apart. And I guess by somehow, whether he could feel resistance there or not, he could tell whether or not you were faking it. Or huh. you were actually hypnotized. I'm, that's just a supposition. But anyway, so John got back to his seat. <laughs> so I assume that he wasn't hypnotized, but I don't know. Um, and then there was probably about 20, 25, maybe even 30 people who he directed to sit down on a chair facing the audience, meaning that they were, I guess, hypnotized. And then he went on with his show 
And Bob, I'm telling you, if you didn't believe that hypnotism was an actual thing before the show, you certainly believed it after the show. Because he had these people doing things, and if you ever look at the advertisements, you can go on uh, YouTube and find them. They're all over YouTube. Just type in Peter Ravine or the man they call Ravine. And oh, you can sure. see well, we'll these be hearing people. a bit of that later too. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, you, know, you can see these people rolling on the floor, pretending they're seals, barking like dogs. Um, at one point, you know, he just—all these are strangers too, because they just came up from the audience. And he says, "Okay, now the person on your right or left or whatever, the person next to you is your lover, right? Show your affection." And these two guys just started necking away, right? And people were just howling. Now, this is 1980. The views about uh, that kind of a thing were a little different than they are today. But the people were just like, nobody would have done that, right? Unless yeah. they were hypnotized. It's almost like acting like a chicken. You wouldn't do it unless you were hypnotized. And so people were absolutely convinced that what went on was something in the mind of these people to make them susceptible to Peter Ravine's suggestions. And so the show ended, and it was a phenomenal thing, and I think it affected me, because today I, I still remember it quite vividly. And at the time, of course, I was a physics major, but I switched to psychology. Because, you know, <laughs> physics is all well and good, but I just witnessed something that was just as mysterious, I think, as cosmology or quantum physics. Like, how do you explain the workings of the mind so that you're willing to do the bidding of somebody else so so um, emphatically you know yeah so there's that, nothing stranger than human behavior and we still haven't got a handle on it it struck me it struck me it was almost like at the um, before that of course there was star trek and you would see a vulcan mind meld right <laughs> where spock would put his hand on somebody's face and say, uh, my thoughts to your thoughts, my mind to your mind. And they would be in a trance. And they would basically join, like two minds working together, join with Spock and become one individual. Now, this, of course, is all fantasy. But when you see something like the Amazing Ravine, then you say, well, this isn't as far-fetched as you might think that as it, as it was depicted on the original Star Trek series. So I was just blown away by it. Wow. So what has that led you to? Now Politics. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And the reason why we're doing it today, because what did we witness over the last few years? We, we saw a demonstration of hypnotism, or as uh, Matthias Desmet um, pointed out, um, a mass formation where people, by the millions, are quite willing to do the bidding of others. And we can get a little bit more into that and, and Desmet's theory later on, but that's why we went from psychology, I mean physics, to psychology, to the mind, to hypnotism, to take the jab, put on a mask, stay inside. Right. Mask your kids, even though they'll never get it. You know, this kind of thing. Uh, it, it is bizarre as rolling on the floor pretending you're a harp seal. <laughs> yeah. well, well, listen, why don't we take a, a break at this point and get a little taste of who this guy is, this hmm. man they call Ravine, shall we? Let's. 
He's known by just one name. He's spent his life surprising and entertaining. He's a hypnotist who could make ordinary people do extraordinary things. He's a magician who staged the most elaborate and expensive touring shows. He broke theater attendance records and performed in person for millions. You'd have to see it to believe it. Oh, really, really good show. Best thing I've ever seen. Ravine's a wizard, and in the truest sense, wise and worldly. He's a mage of the highest order. Peter is, I guess, revered would be the right word in the magic community. He is, without doubt, the greatest P.T. Barnum promoter this business has ever seen. Gentleman hypnotist, master magician, devoted family man, tireless self-promoter. This is the man they call Ravine. If you're over the age of 25, you've likely heard of the man they call Ravine. And if you're under the age of 25, you'll find this next story interesting anyway. Peter Ravine is arguably the most famous hypnotist and illusionist in the world. After 35 years of touring North America, Ravine the Impossibilist is calling it a day, and he's giving thanks to the people of Edmonton, who adopted the Australian magician as one of their own. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Ravine, the Impossibilist. He was the original celebrity magician, perhaps best known for his stage hypnotism that saw ordinary people do extraordinary things. Just roll on the water and swim away now, swim away, try to swim now, swim faster. One thing that makes me very, very happy, nobody has ever had to say to me, you had a filthy, dirty show. They know that I had a beautiful show that entire families could enjoy. It gave them also a lot of knowledge about how the human mind works. And when they see their own friends and come up on the stage and become brilliant entertainers during that three and a half hour show that we presented all over the world, I feel proud of it. Joining us now is a man who knows Ravine well. Shelby Cregan is an Edmonton magician. He spent several years touring with Ravine. Uh, thanks for joining us. So tell me about the actual hypnotism part of it, because I, I look back at some of the video, and it's hilarious. And I think, are these people really hypnotized? Was Ravine really that good? Yes, he was that good. And uh, hypnosis is, is the easiest way to describe it is two people working together, their minds working together. Uh, it, it's not deep, deep, dark science where, where someone goes into a trance and, and they can be controlled totally. It's not. It's, it's two minds working together. But these people are doing silly things and rolling around oh, sure. on the floor and swimming and singing and whatever. Where, how do you get to the point where you've let go of your self-awareness uh, and you're willing to act silly? Well, you, the two minds working together has the other mind relaxing to the point where they can be their inner self. Wow. They, they can perform. Everybody has a desire to to perform. I guess Absolutely so. Absolutely okay. everybody. And so, you say he was one of the best you've ever seen? He's the best. And that last report was from Global News about Peter Ravine's retirement some decade or two ago. And I found an interesting comment being made by Shelby Cragen, the, the person that was interviewed there, who talked about describing hypnosis as two people working together. Their minds are working together. 
And if it is true that hypnotism requires two minds to work together, Robert, do you think this is a factor in mass formation or other forms of collectivism? Because Matthias Desmet, when he was talking about mass formation, he described it, get this, quote, as a diabolical pact between the masses and their leaders. Sounds very much like hypnosis. In fact, he referred to it literally as hypnosis. Do you see a difference between the two forms we're talking about? Well, I'm sure, you know, if you were to talk about it clinically, there may be some differences. And, and nothing is, you know, cut and dried as far as motivation goes or all of the causal factors which would allow a person to do things that he wouldn't normally do. And some of the experiments that I studied in psychology and that are, again, readily available online now uh, were fascinating to demonstrate just how many different conditions can change the way a person is susceptible or not to suggestion. Uh, One of them, of course, was the Milgram experience. A lot of people may be familiar with this. Stanley Milgram, in 1963, published his findings, uh, quite controversial, actually, because they... So a lot of people thought they were unethical. What he did was he had one person in a white coat who pretended to be a Yale researcher. So a man of authority, a serious figure too. I mean, he was an actor, I guess. And then you would have the um, confederate, which is somebody who knows what's going on and is just an actor as well, sitting in an easy chair but tied up to electrodes. And then there's the test subject, the unwilling or unwitting rather, test subject, who um, had control of a shock device, which would shock the uh, confederate in the chair. Now, what would happen was that he would ask the person in the chair questions, and if the person got a question wrong, he was instructed to shock him, give him an electric shock. And the more questions he got wrong, the more he had to increase the shock level. Right from voltage up to, uh, I think the highest they got to was 450 volts, which of course is, uh, you know, quite a shock, I would imagine. Yeah. So what happened was that when people got to about um, 300 volts, the person, the confederate, would feign that he is being injured. You know, he says, I have to stop, I have a heart condition. He would pound on the walls, he would scream in agony. And the fake professor in the white coat would say, please continue, right? Or the experiment requires that you continue. Prodding number three was, it's absolutely necessary to continue. And finally, you have no other choice. You must go on, right? So just with those proddings, the person would increase the shock level, even though the person who was in the chair on the receiving end of the electrical shock was in physical distress, right? Screaming, pounding, all of that stuff. Now, these people didn't know each other. It's just a university environment, right? And there was 37 people who took part as test subjects. Um, 65% of those 37 test subjects were willing to shock the other person to the point where they thought they were going to perhaps even kill them, right? They uh, would hear their protests, their screams, their poundings on the wall, and yet they'd continue because the authoritarian Yale researcher in the white coat prodded them into doing it. That was all that it took, was a voice of authority to make somebody do something that they didn't want to do. As a matter of fact, 
Most of the test subjects were visibly shaken, sweating, shaking, like, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. And then he says, you have no other choice, you must go on. That's all it took for them to go on. Wow. They, they, they actually, you know, pleaded, you know, I, I can't do this with, with the guy. I mean, you know, I'm obviously hurting him. And he would just say, you know, please continue. And they would. They absolutely would. I wonder what you make of this story that I just ran across just this past Friday. And this is in the mainstream media. I got this out of the National Post this past Friday. And let me just share this with you. It's out of Kenya, and the headline reads, Another pastor arrested in starvation cult deaths. And I quote, Melindi, a Kenyan church leader was arrested on Thursday over the mass killing of his followers, the interior minister said, just days after the leader of a cult based in the same region was detained and mass graves of his followers were found. Another pastor, Paul McKenzie, is accused of ordering his followers to starve themselves to death ahead of what he predicted would be the end of the world on April 15. At least 98 members of McKenzie's Good News International Church have died, and the death toll has been steadily rising since authorities started exhuming mass graves on Friday. And quote, and that was from Reuters, Wow. What, is ta- what, what does it take for somebody to tell you to starve yourself to death and then you do it? Well, that's the whole thing, isn't it, Bob? Uh, there are so many instances like that, Jim Jones and the Kool-Aid, right? Yeah, but that, that was at least over in a few minutes. <laughs> I don't think starving would be that quick a process. Exactly. No, no, you're right. Uh, just think, for example, uh, go back to the Second World War, Japanese kamikazes, kamikaze pilots. Now, you see them depicted in uh, Hollywood, right? And you might think that there were a handful of them. But when you learn that there were about 3,800 kamikaze pilots in World War II, then you start to see that this is not just something that happens to a small segment of society. This is something in, that is part of the human mind, that a huge number of people, the vast majority, I would think, are susceptible to this kind of suggestion or manipulation by authorities. You know, for the kamikaze pilot, it was their captains yeah. or their majors or their emperor telling them to sacrifice your life for the empire. And for these people, it was sacrificing themselves for an afterlife. Same with Jim Jones, that kind of a thing. And it's the same for almost anything, but to varying degrees, I would suggest. Like when you see people, uh, you know, speaking in tongues, rolling on the floor and, and babbling, because of what? Because they're in an environment where it's acceptable, where it's almost expected, uh, and that brings me to the conditions that we talked about before. Uh, there, the Solomon Ash test, uh, people might remember this. I think I brought it up on the show before. Solomon Ash's conformity experiences were about the willingness of people to ignore the reality of their minds and senses just so that they conform to the thinking of a group. They were fascinating right. experiments, you know. In those experiments, um, 75% of people were willing to conform to groupthink one-third of the time. That's the degree that would indicate to me that this is a human condition, that it's the majority of people that are willing to do these things. Now, the context, how they change, the larger the group, the greater the tendency to conform, 
to the group. The more difficult the task that they were asked to perform, the greater the tendency to conform to what the group thought. So when, in, when they're faced with their own doubt, people defer to the opinions of others who they may see as being smarter than they are. Well, uh, you know, I'm presented with three lines. Uh, to me, line three is the longer, but everybody else says it's line two. Well, hmm, maybe they're seeing it a different way than I am. I'll, 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 you know, I'll say right. two as well, right? And then another condition would be you're more likely to conform if the social status of the group is higher than your social status. In other words, it's deference to your betters. Let's say that they're all, you come in, into the classroom and you're dressed in your jeans and t-shirt and everybody there is dressed, you know, much more seriously, maybe with suits and ties or something like that. And you go there and, oh, you're, you're this, this bum <laughs> in a room and these people look like, oh, they have a higher social status than I do. You're more likely to defer to what they have to say. And finally, this is the important thing and it gets political here. Privacy impacts your tendency to conform. If you're able to respond to the questions in these situations in private, then you're less likely to go along with the group. And now couple that with our loss of privacy we're seeing today. And maybe that could give you a clue as to why everything you do and and say now is recorded. Look at the uh, social credit score in China, where if you're out of doors, you're tracked 24 7 you know you're tracked everywhere you go everything you say is being recorded by your device on your hip everything you do is being recorded and you have a social credit score so what happens according to the ash experiment you're more likely in those situations without privacy to do whatever you're told that's fascinating and you know i'll leave this question with everyone as we go into the next uh, audio bite regarding the story in kenya How is that any different from the COVID-19 narrative? I mean, here we have these officials, the authorities, you know, who are killing their own citizens en masse by convincing them to take a death jab called a vaccine. Meanwhile, at the same time, they're prosecuting church leaders for doing the same thing to their members. (laughs) Is that as dystopian as it gets or what? (laughs) Anyways, we'll be back right after this. Eight dash five, eight five seven. That's right. That's exactly correct. <laughs> and now for something I call the power of the jade scorpion. For this, I'll need a few victims. <laughs> I mean, of course, volunteers from the audience and help from a few nice people. Oh yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. Sir. Oh, we got another one. Bring it up We got another one for you. Represent us well, Briggs. Many years ago, an emperor in China received as a gift this precious pendant, a jade scorpion. It was said to possess extraordinary powers, the power to darken men's minds. I, I, I can't get hypnotized. I'm not a good subject. Eyes only on the scorpion, please. Ears open only to the sound of my voice. Please, sir, sir, look at the scorpion. The surrender of the mind. The surrender of the mind. They resist and resist. But the scorpion likes resistance. What is your name, sir? C.W. Briggs. 
And what do you do, Mr. Briggs? I'm an insurance investigator for North Coast Casualty and Fidelity of New York. What is your name, miss? Betty Ann Fitzgerald. I also work at North Coast. So you work together? I can't stand her. Oh, Don't pay attention to him. He's a sleazy little megalomaniac who's frightened of women. Sleep. Silence. You are now at the first level of trance, but the Jade Scorpion wants you to go to the deepest level. When I say the word Constantinople, you will instantly drop into the deepest hypnotic trance. All resistance will disappear. When I say the word Madagascar, you will go immediately to the deepest level of hypnotic sleep, and you will obey all my orders. Ready now. Constantinople. Madagascar. C.W. Briggs and Miss Betty Ann Fitzgerald, I now pronounce you man and wife. When I snap my fingers, you will awaken. You will not know that you are in a trance, but you will be madly in love with each other. You're on your honeymoon on a deserted desert island. Maestro, the moon shines down its magical glow on you two honeymooners. You're deeply, deeply in love. Are you ready? One, two, three. Awaken to your tropical paradise. What are you thinking? I'm thinking that... I'm the luckiest man in the world. I'm the lucky one. I was in love with you from the first moment that I saw you. Make love to me here, under the stars, to the sound of the ocean. Miss Fitzgerald, aren't you making a mistake? I'm no longer Miss Fitzgerald. I'm Mrs. C.W. Briggs. Betty Ann. Make love to me here. <laughs> now. Stop. Enough. <laughs> Unfortunately, every dream must turn to reality. When I snap my fingers, you will awaken and you will have no memory at all of this event. You will return to your regular lives as they exist with whatever destinies await you and let us all hope they're pleasant ones. Are you ready to awaken on the snap of my fingers? One, you're beginning to come up. Two, the memory is fading completely. Three, the Jade Scorpion has created the miracle of love. And four, awaken. How do you feel? I'm waiting for something to happen. <laughs> How do you feel, Miss? I'm afraid I'm not a very good subject. No, me neither. I, I told you this would not work. Well, I, I, I tried my best. Come on, George, back me up. Briggsy, I'm telling you, you gazed deeply into her eyes and you told her you loved her. Crazy. I would never do such a thing. This is a conspiracy to make me appear crazy. I hope somebody talks to me like that someday. I can't bear Fitzgerald. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And that scene we just heard with Woody Allen and Helen Hunt, a ridiculous pairing, but... You can do anything when you can hypnotize people, eh, Robert? Um, <laughs> Apparently. And that experience between, you know, Woody Allen and Helen Hunt falling in love on that stage, that 
literally sounded like what you were describing with Ravine on the stage and what he was able to do. So this is almost a, a realistic depiction of something that goes on in reality. Truth is stranger than fiction, Bob. It really is. I mean, look at, look at what we've just gone through. I, yeah. I, I swear that there have been movies about, you know, viruses and, and things like that, the end of the world scenarios, but we're living through one right now. Oh, tell me about it. And it is so complex, so intricate, and it involves one of the biggest weapons, bigger than a nuclear bomb. You know? yeah. And that yeah. is the human mind and the power of persuasion. I think, I truly think this, that over the last 50 or 60 years, you know, since the ash experiment, since the uh, atrocities that were committed during the Second World War by uh, both the Japanese and the, uh, the Nazis, the um, axis of evil, but <laughs> prior to Bush's axis of evil, that yeah. people started to study what makes people do nasty things. And I'm convinced that a lot of money has been put into the study of persuasion. Well, I know it has, actually, because you know, advertisement, for example, sure. is nothing but persuasion. And you can spend billions on new tanks and weapons and Star Wars type of particle beams or anything like that that you want. But we've just witnessed the fact that research... And the application into psychology is what changes nations. Oh, absolutely. People are absolutely willing to believe that Biden actually won. That taking this jab or giving it to six-month-old babies is good for society. They have been hypnotized. They have been. And, and just look at, look at the hypnotists. You get um, Teresa Tam up there, Canada's uh, chief medical officer of health or any of the other medical officers of health throughout the provinces or in the United States, sometimes they're in white coats. Look at Fauci. He's often depicted in his white lab coat. They know, they know that he's a position of authority. He's in a position of authority and that they, he knows better than the rest of us in our lower social status. And he wears a white lab coat. This is right out of Stanley Milgram's experiments, right out of it. They yeah, studied it's, it. It, it, it. It's just a slice of the big picture, though, because there's so many questions unanswered. For example, some of the reactions, I, I, I saw some posts to these online sites where they were featuring Peter Ravine. And a couple that caught my eye was, you know, just comments like this. They extend over, you know, one year to several years. But one person writes, I got to meet Peter Ravine in Los Angeles in 72 at the Magic Castle in Hollywood. He played the Schubert Theater there. What a very nice man he was. Another guy writes, My friend and I were on stage with him in 1968 in St. John, New Brunswick. I was in the first stages of hypnosis when someone in the audience laughed, and it sounded so loud I came out of that state. But I felt so relaxed for about a week after that. What a good feeling it is. I will never forget Ravine. Oh, to right? that point, Bob, before you yeah. get into any others, to that point, he ended off his show by the people who were still hypnotized. And when he brought them out of the hypnotism, he told them that uh, when you come out of this, you will, you know, from now on, you'll have a beautiful night's sleep. You'll feel refreshed. In the mornings, you will wake up 
and you'll be clear-headed. And he just gave them some good thoughts, you know, or good suggestions um, over what would happen in the next few days. And that comment by the person you just mentioned confirms that, you know, it was amazing. And here's another comment. Um, I saw a ravine in the late 60s in Winnipeg. Years later, my nephew was at a ravine show on stage in Winnipeg and was hypnotized. He was told that he was doing silly things under hypnosis, yet he does not remember a thing. And that's an interesting aspect as well. And I don't know what this last guy had in mind, but he says, I hear Ravine talking about the mystery of the human mind, but can he grow weed so intense that it'll blow your head off? (laughs) (laughs) You know, Ravine did tell the people who were hypnotized that they would not remember what they did. And good, because if they did, they'd be mortified. Well, you know, is it they because, would feel guilty. Is it because he told them they wouldn't remember that they didn't? Or was there something else? Or would they not have remembered had he told them that or not? Well, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. See, that that to me is is fascinating. And, you know, there's such, such great comparisons to what's going on with the bigger picture, with, you know, the whole mass hypnosis, or ha- mass formation, rather. <laughs> I guess it is mass his- hypnosis. Yeah, let me give and, you a definition of hypnosis. And that might be a clue to, 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 to putting these pieces together. Hypnosis involves attention and awareness. Your attention becomes focused and the awareness of your surroundings, your peripheral awareness, becomes diminished. You then are more susceptible to suggestion. So when that person heard a laugh, you know, he sounded really loud. All of a sudden his attention, the focus of his attention was uh, shifted to his periphery, and he came out of the trance. And I think that that's what's happening here, is that, for example, if you turn on the television and all you get is the mainstream media, the state-funded press, then that's your attention, right? Your periphery is like uh, the conspiracy theorists, right? Uh, People like you and I who are trying to, uh, who are only small voices uh, on the periphery trying to wake the person out of their, their, their trance. I mean, that's just an analogy, but I think that there's something to it. Well, Robert, that seems to speak to Matthias Desmond's point, even though it's a small percentage. He says about 5% of the people really are awake. And he says that they must continue to speak out to break the spell, as he puts it, right? And that sounds very much like what you're talking about. But again, the, the, the mass psychosis in this case, I mean, it's so huge that it's, it's more difficult to understand. And then there is, I don't know, how do you feel about the whole mass formation theory to begin with? Because there's some, quite a bit of controversy about it. Well, I think there's a lot to it. Now, remember that Matthias Desmet didn't create this theory. It came about by Hannah Arendt, uh, A-R-E-N-D-T, if you want to look it up, and, uh, in a book that she wrote in 1951, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Now, I've never read any of Aaron's books, but um, it's telling that the next couple of books are focusing on the mind. The Human Condition was a book. And then mm-hmm. her final book, which she didn't um, end up finishing, uh, three volumes, it was, they only published two of them. Um, it was called The Life of the Mind. So this person, Arndt, was obviously fascinated. Now, she was a Jew, and this is coming out of Second World War, Right. She was fascinated, obviously, by why a human would do what they did during the Second World War. 
And I think that that's where our focus should be uh, when we're trying to understand politics. And it, even the, the slightest thing, like why do people prefer ads that are hard hitting? You know, like uh, sometimes the conservatives here in Canada got chided over the fact that they had an ad uh, showing, you know, a negative ad showing Jean Chrétien with his um, telltale uh, lip up, right? It's because yeah. the guy was hard of hearing as a child. And so people didn't like that, or they, they like it down in the States. Like, things like that. There are focus groups going on all the time trying to explain why people do the way, what they do, right? Why they do it. And they're, they're honing in on the human mind. And um, we're, we're seeing the, the results. The results is people are being led over a cliff like a bunch of uh, lemmings. Yeah, well, they, they, they seem to be going willingly. Um, you know, P Dr. Peter Bregan ha had a different take on this. He, he thought that people like Desmond were misdirecting people because he says his argument is putting the blame for everything that happens on the public when the real problem is the totalitarians themselves. And yeah, I've, heard them that. I've heard that complaint, yeah. And there, there is something to it. There's perhaps a little bit of both in there. But at the end of the day, and uh, I, I think we cannot forget that at the end of the day, a person has free will. Right. Yes, they are human beings with some characteristics that we're now trying to define. They are susceptible under certain conditions to behave in certain ways. However, I think that people have to be taught to exercise their free will. And they are, they have the con we have to have the conditions that people should be allowed to exercise their free will. One of them, of course, is privacy, as I already mentioned. The other is an ability to think critically, to be able to even think about what their situation is. Oh, you know, exactly, exactly. And, and after, in the next segment, I'm going to get into uh, one of the flaws that we have and that's allowing us to, to fall into these traps. Okay. You're going to take that coat off, you know, because uh, it hasn't rained in this apartment in 20 years. Oh, well... <laughs> I happen to pass away while we we're doing anything, just have the mom leave the smile on my face. Perfect timing. I'll slip into something a little bit more comfortable. Wait for you in bed. More comfortable than that? What are you gonna put on? Jurgen's lotion? Hello? Constantinople. You are in the power of the Jade Scorpion. You will proceed to the Dilworth Mansion. You will enter and open the safe. Have you ever heard of an Indian book called the Kama Sutra? I'm sorry, Laura, but we're going to have to postpone our little rendezvous. Pardon me? I just recalled a previous engagement. I hope you don't mind. The doorman will get you a taxi. I had a wonderful evening. Thank you very much. <sighs> You are joking, of course. I'll turn around, and you can get dressed. And please try and hurry. I'm rather pressed for time. Have you got a loose screw? Tonight was very meaningful to me. Really, I'll always think of it in a very cherished way. If you're in the neighborhood again, drop in. What's come over you? Should you want any peanuts to snack on on the way home, I think I have a whole dish of them in the other room. You hate women, don't you? Not at all. Actually, they're a splendid gender. 
really a very pleasant variation. Nervous tension can prevent you from relaxing, can spoil your leisure hours, and rob you of the sleep you need at night. But nervous tension can be relieved through the application of planned suggestion. It is not the aim of this record to hypnotize you, not at all. Instead, it will teach you to apply powerful positive suggestion, the same suggestion I use myself to relax my own mind and body. Relaxation is nature's own remedy for fatigue. Everybody knows that with relaxation, a tired body will renew its energy. For instance, if you run around a football field, you will find that your legs get tired. But you know that if you sit down and rest, you'll feel refreshed, will be able to run further. Exactly the same principle applies to the mind. The mind needs regular relaxation. But how often, at the end of a day, has your mind been too tense to relax? The mind remains tense when it is restlessly turning over personal problems, worrying about financial matters or the conflicts of daytime employment, or fretting over the troubles of the world. A mind so strained and tense cannot relax, even in sleep. The night passes in uneasy dreams, and the body is not refreshed as it should be. But you can overcome this difficulty if you thoroughly relax your mind before you go to bed. Better still, you can learn to relax from time to time during the day so that nervous tension never builds up to an unpleasant degree. The purpose of this record is to train you in the art of relaxing both your mind and your body. Use it regularly. Train your mind through repetition to follow the suggestions and then you'll be ready to progress. One word of caution. Sometimes, nervous tension may be caused by a physical disorder. If the inability to relax persists, I suggest that you consult your own doctor so that he may diagnose the problem for you. If anybody has been watching the National Citizens Inquiry about the uh, lockdowns and the response of government to the so-called pandemic, they would, may have seen Bruce Party. I've, I've interviewed Bruce in the past, and you can find, it, uh, find that interview or interviews, actually, on uh, our YouTube channel, Rumble channel. But what Bruce Party, who is a professor of law at Queen's University, had to say that is germane to this discussion about hypnosis is that in the context of the structure of our government, Parliament delegates authority to the ministry and to the executive branch. It, in other words, it's unlike in the United States where Congress uh, passes all of the, the laws and regulations, for example, Obamacare is probably 50 million pages, <laughs> an exaggeration, but not by much, um, the act itself. Nobody can read it. Um, here in Canada, you can have the Canada Health Act, which is only a couple of pages long or uh, any of the acts, look at them, and, they, and you'll read that they delegate the authority of the minister and the ministry to fine-tune everything, make the regulations. And at the other end, in league, uh, when it comes to the courts, the courts defer 
to authority, voices of authority. They will more take the word of a cop, for example, a person of authority, than the, um, the, the person in the, in the dock, because the cop um, is an authority figure. And, and thirdly, he talked about mootness. That is that in the structure of our government, the courts say something is moot if the law has been changed. And we saw that recently with um, the edict by the government that you cannot fly if you're not jabbed. Now, Brian Peckford et, et al. made a, an, a plea to the Supreme Court that this should be struck down because it violates our mobility rights. Now, just before, and I'm talking, I think it was like 24 hours before, the government uh, changed the law. They got rid of the law. And so the court says, well, the point is moot, so we're not going to think about it or judge on it. Now, take that down to the level of the individual, and I think we have what's going on here, or at least part of it. Some of it's hypnotism. Another part of it is just simple intellectual laziness. What do we do? What does the individual do? They delegate their fact-finding to journalists. I'm not interested in going around and finding out about viruses and vaccines and all of that. I'll just take the, uh, the opinion of my doctor or the opinion of Rosie Barton on CBC. Right? They're the ones who are doing all the legwork. I'll delegate my fact-finding to them. And I'll just judge by you know, my opinion based on what they find out. Interesting. I'm, I'm lazy. What yeah, else Dan do they Dix do? At, I'm sorry. By the way, Dan, Dan Dix at Press for Truth just told a story about exactly what you just said. <laughs> he got, him and a friend of his got into a, into a private, you know, media gathering that they weren't supposed to be at, but they thought they, they were there with the CBC, right? Oh. <laughs> and once they talked to the other reporters, they were all amazed at Dan Dix and his friend because they were real reporters, and they all admired them. And they said to him, literally, that, you know, you guys do all the work. We're, we're, we're just delegated to, to report. Uh, yes. They literally told him that. You'll see that in one of the latest posts. Well, that's of the, one Dicks. of the things is delegation. Of course, then there's yeah. the deference that the, that the person has. Now, we're, we're taking it from the government level down, down to the individual level. But what do people do? They defer to the authority, right? So... I was talking to a family member who got the jab, and I told him that, you know, here's my opinion on it based on what I found out. And he goes, you know, well, I'm going to just trust my doctor. Well, you know, I can understand that. But if I had a, a, a really a, a decision to make that could be life or death, you know, I would do my due diligence and try to find out as much as I can and not defer my opinion to some, somebody because they're wearing a white coat or they have a doctor in front of their name, you know, because, well, yeah, sure, my doctor may say this, but I've got 50,000 doctors who might say something different, right? So this deference to authority um, goes back to the Ash experiments. It goes back to the Milgram experiments. It, um, it touches on hypnosis. And I think that that's another uh, part of this tripod of intellectual laziness. You're going to say something, Bob? Well, it would almost seem that Knowing that, as we do, the, about this whole whole phenomenon, you would think that it would be necessary to teach these things to our children at as young an age as possible, that they can comprehend it and be aware that they are subject to these things. You know, 
this none of this is new. None none of it. Mm-hmm. And if you ever read the Mass Psychology of Fascism by Willem Reich, he outlines everything we've seen today, even down to the attitudes on sexuality. And what did he have to end up with? What book did he end up writing that he didn't really want released? And it was a book called Listen, Little Man. Yes. In which he just tore into the average man who would kill his neighbor or his child just to comply with some authorities. He saw this constantly because he was literally, he had people on his psychiatric couch during World War II, leading up to World War II in Germany, right? Mm -hmm. So he saw this develop firsthand, and it's the same phenomenon, and yet we still aren't teaching this in our schools. How else will you ever know about it unless you're aware of it, you know? Oh, I agree 100%, and I think that this kind of critical thinking and um, it's the necessity of focusing your mind on, a, on a something and not delegating that to somebody else or deferring to some authority, uh, you know, tacitly without any criticism. I think that's, that's what's gotten into this uh, situation we are now. And of course, the last point that uh, Bruce Party brought up was mootness. And now just consider what we see today. The National Citizens Inquiry is going around the country and none of the major media are covering it. Why? Because the point is moot. It is no longer affecting people. They don't have to wear their masks. They don't have to get their jabs to travel except to go across into the United States. Um, They don't have to do any of the things that they used to do, social distancing, any of those things. So why are they so willing to forget the atrocities that our governments have committed upon us? Because the point is moot. Well, it's a bit like saying that the courts don't have to solve a murder because a murder happened, so, you know, it's no longer an event. That's almost how stupid that sounds. You know, for a court, I can almost see why they would do that, because uh, the court's time and money would be involved in trying to adjudicate over something that would have no consequence anymore. But for a person... No, but think, I'm, I'm referring to holding, holding a murderer responsible for the murder he committed, right? Like, you have to carry on with that, even though the person he killed is dead and it's all in the past. Oh, no. Uh, How uh, is that no, any different? No, the, um, the court considers something moot if, for example, the murderer died, right? Ah. Not, not the victim, <laughs> but the murderer. Okay. So, you know, okay. they, they, the case is dismissed, right? You saw that in London, Ontario, not too long ago when a person was being charged because uh, they had AIDS and gave it to somebody and they didn't tell that person that they had been infected. And it was a, it was a major trial and, and was one of the first about this kind of a situation. And then the, the perpetrator died and so the case never came to a decision. To, to everybody's chagrin, they, they're going, oh, darn. <laughs> you, know, you know, we wanted to see where this was going to go, but the judge says no. The perpetrator is dead. The point is moot. Now, why do we as individuals think that just because something is now debatable, you know, uh, moot, that's what the word moot means, why should we forgive our government officials, our doctors especially, for doing the things that they did to us? We should not. Just like we shouldn't delegate, we shouldn't defer, we shouldn't consider things being moot. We should press for truth. (laughs) Just like Dan Dix's page, yeah, just we should press for truth. These things have to be discussed. That's why the Ash experiment went on. That's why the Stanley Milgram's experiment went on. That's why Hannah Arndt wrote her books, you know, after the fact. 
It wasn't moot to these people. They're trying to understand why we do what we do so that we don't do it again. You think it's possible to hypnotize people with the truth? <laughs> or would that be a contradiction in terms? I wouldn't want to. You know, I'd like people to, to open up their minds, to focus, you know, using their own will, not somebody else's will. I don't want them right. to be suggestible. I, I, want them to, I want them to open their mind. Well, anything else, Robert, before we wrap up? Oh, just a quick thank you to everybody who's donated to Just Right Media in the past. Uh, uh, you can do that. Go to our website, justrightmedia.org. Uh, we prefer, if you're so inclined, to give us a donation uh, to do an e-transfer. That's feedback at justrightmedia.org, but you might want to go to our website just to make sure you get it right. We have auto-deposit enabled, so there's no questions involved there. And, uh, and there's also no fees. But if you want to pay a fee or take the fee out, there's PayPal as well. So um, I would encourage people to support what we do so that we can continue to do it. And I'd, I'd let everybody out there know that all of the contributions that have come in over the years, Bob and I have never taken a dime for ourselves. We're not no, paid. We're crazy. We don't <laughs> get paid. All of this money goes to pay for the uh, servers, um, which are in the United States. <laughs> Uh, and that is bloody expensive, uh, and and the things like that, and equipment, and um, it, it goes into producing this show, and so right. we're not we're not making any money on this, you know. So please, if you've got um, the inclination, uh, show us your support, and I thank you for those who have already given and uh, who have helped us out, especially Paul Lambert. Paul, Paul puts this uh, show on shortwave. We're listened to throughout North America from WBCQ in Maine and throughout Europe, uh, channel 292, which is in Ingolstadt, Germany. So thank you, Paul Lambert, for that contribution in kind. Your kind. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thank you, Robert. And well, now that we've managed to hypnotize our listeners to make it to the closing of our show today, Let's hope that that spell will hold and compel them to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. You will contribute. You will donate. into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Andre! General von Hammerschlag. Ah, uh, my dear Kumasa, you may go. Uh, General, may I present my new doorman and my... Uh... A busboy, a mute uh, general, unfortunately, but a most unusual man. Most interesting go. <laughs> yes, of course, General. And uh, our congratulations. My congratulations. Well, concerning Prince Bismarck, come, come. Wait! I believe you mentioned the name of Prince Bismarck. What about Prince Bismarck? Well... General, Kumasa has found that this man, in the proper hypnotic state, talks directly with the shade of Prince Bismarck. But he is a mute, you said. Most fascinating. He is a French mute. But under hypnosis, his former self emerges, an American of the past century. I do not believe it. Kumasa, you remember, the prince seemed most interested in the general's career. You mentioned none of this. Oh, it's all been most recent. Look at him. 
Obviously a man of limited intelligence. <laughs> Observe the eyes, how close together. <laughs> and yet in the spirit world, the intimate of Prince. I would like to know more. Uh, perhaps. Uh, next week. Tonight. We will try, if Kumasa is willing. Oh, I wouldn't miss it. 